we're good with going down in quality actually and that's both across sort of the ratings tiers and within the capital structures we've advocated for the past six months sort of a barbell approach from our remote offices in the new york tri-state area welcome to no more risk better credit sites podcast this podcast offers conversations with our analysts to get their perspective and expertise on the global credit markets if you are an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income you will want to give us a listen We are living a surreal life right now, but our team of nearly 100 analysts continues to publish content to our more than 15,000 readers across global credit markets. I'm Christopher Snow, the U.S. Head of Research and the moderator, and I'm here with Jesse Rosenthal, the Head of U.S. Financials. Hi, Jesse. Welcome. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, Very happy to have you back on. The last time we spoke was mid-April, and the theme of that discussion was, this time is different. And by that, you meant that the banks did not have their fingerprints on this particular crisis and were actually fairly well positioned to not only move through, but to help mitigate liquidity gaps that the market was seeing at the time. Has anything changed on that thesis for you? Not at all. I actually think, if anything, the past six months performance-wise has just served to underscore the fundamental strength of the banks, both individually, the issuers we look at, and collectively for the financial system as a whole. I think, you know, very basically, if you look at a sector that has gotten ahead of credit losses through these massive reserve builds that we've seen, while also generally staying in the black on the bottom line, and what you're seeing is that even in the third quarter, the banks that were pushed into a loss position in the first half because of that reserving, those are generally consumer lenders, they're returning to profitability at levels that more than wipe out those paper losses in the first half of the year. So I think from that fundamental perspective, our thesis has been borne out. And then you add on that there's been you know, continued deposit inflows into the system, and you have these regulatory restrictions on buybacks that forces the whole sector to build capital. And so, yeah, I think six months on, I think the fundamental bull thesis on the banks has only really been reinforced. Thanks, Jesse. We'll dig into a couple of those. But first, I'd like to start with uh, a question on the consumer, probably given my background of looking at that sector. And specifically, I'd like to think about the consumer financial health. And one of the interesting things that you've discussed is that the banks are actually generally constructive on loan defaults, whether it's student loans, mortgages, et cetera. And, you know, of course, we're looking at the consumer data and we had the meaningful decline in benefits since August, government benefits, elevated level of unemployment in the population and uh, a sizable amount of loans that are in forbearance. So what's going on here? You know, is this the five alarm fire, you know, or is this a strained borrower that's somehow holding it together? Yeah, so I think one point of clarification here, while while the banks are kind of generally constructive on consumer credit and loan defaults, they are still very wary. You know, I think we're in a little bit of a loss limbo right now when it comes to credit quality, especially for the banks and the consumer portfolios, where the actual loss content and delinquency formation has been pushed out continuously. But I also think it's important to sort of take a step back here, and there's a couple points to make on consumer credit when you're trying to balance, like you said, these, you know, relative relatively constructive view from the banks and these massive macro data points that we're seeing. So I think, first of all, the idea that bank consumer lending has really shifted over the past decade, and it shifted to focus on a lower risk borrower base, specifically compared to the last crisis. You can look at credit cards, FICO distributions are significantly higher compared to the run-up to the GFC. And the issuer focus from the card perspective, just as a good representative sample set there, it's really been focusing on the higher earners, higher spenders within that borrower base. And then the second point I would make is that the bank holdings of total consumer credit is actually meaningful lower today, which you combine it with that quality mix shift, I think means that the 
the bank's experience when it comes to consumer credit is less representative of the macro hold today than it was in the prior cycle. The biggest difference in terms of those holdings of consumer credit, by the way, is really in student loans. So if you go back 10 years ago, banks owned a little over 50% of total outstanding consumer debt, and the government owned around 10%. Fast forward today, Banks have shed more than 10 points of share. They're around 40% of consumer credit now, and the federal government owns a whopping one-third, and all of that is student loans. I would also say the credit unions have also picked up a little bit of share in this cycle, specifically over the past five years or so. Our analysis indicates that most of that is in retail auto. So I think just from a general representation aspect, it's not quite as all-encompassing in terms of banks' uh, borrower base mapping over to the fuller macro. And then I would also bring up the matter of this kind of so-called K-shape recovery that's being thrown around. I would argue that the bank exposure skew significantly towards the sort of top half of that K. So historical correlations between headline unemployment and credit card delinquencies, which is a well-known relationship, those correlations have completely broken down. And yes, stimulus has an impact to it, obviously, but I think no small part of that is also the unemployment mix, because we've seen that skew much more towards lower paying industries like retail or services that were hardest hit by the pandemic and the shutdowns. But we also think that that unemployment mix has much less of a customer base overlap with the banks. Now, going forward, there is a little bit, again, wariness. It's an area that Discover, credit card issuer, has been flagging. And that's the concern that as we get further into this recessionary environment, companies are going to start looking at cost bases to defend margins amid this revenue reorientation. And we get more white collar layoffs, so to speak which would have more flow through to bank loan portfolios. And I think that is sort of part of the wariness. And then you add on the obfuscating factors of the fading effects of U.S. stimulus as we get further away from the CARES Act fiscal measures. You have the bank's own deferral measures, although those, I think, kind of fall into the encouraging camp. Deferral loan balances have come down massively. Several of them, especially on the consumer side, are actually winding down these forbearance programs. And then you still do have some of these moratoria that were enacted by the CARES Act that are still out there, evictions on the local and state level, mortgages, student loans. So to kind of bring it back to your question, I think that the bank's consumers are truly holding it together, but we still do need to be cautious about extrapolating that out to the broader U.S. consumer. And then even within that sort of lower credit risk, higher earning population that tends to dominate bank balance sheets, you know, they might be constructive, but the banks are really far from declaring victory here because six months on, I hate to say, uncertainty still reigns. You have additional stimulus and the domestic path of the virus are still major unknowns that could absolutely knock us off this sort of constructive baseline that we're currently on. Thanks, Jesse. While we wait for the consumer uncertainty to play out, uh, the corporate side has been quite strong. We've seen significant capital market activity, trading volumes, particularly in fixed income, you know, be my guess that some of this is pull forward demand as borrowers take advantage of low rates, tight spreads, and lender appetite for deals. Has this started to trail off at all? I mean, it is, but we still saw very healthy results in the third quarter. I think market environments are still supportive for the capital markets businesses, but realistically, the first half of the year should rightfully be viewed as sort of found money. We can't and we should not expect that to recur, but I think still solid activity remains eminently reasonable. Last quarter, Jamie Dimon 
JP Morgan had sort of softly guided towards, if you want to kind of think about the steady state environment for the cap markets business, take the first half of 2020 and cut it in half, which would still be quite healthy. I mean, I think it really just speaks to how strong things were in the middle of the year. And then I think one of the softer areas for the banks, actually, which has been M&A, seems like it could actually be picking up as we push further into this crisis. I think management teams were decently optimistic on pipelines and activity picking up over the next several quarters and just kind of sitting on the terminals. You can see it does kind of feel like like the deal making is starting to pick up a little bit. Yeah, you know, sign of confidence coming back across the landscape. You know, before the issuance picked up, and, and I'd say probably at the peak of the panic and the crisis and before the Fed stepped in, you know, we'd seen several areas of the financial system seize up, whether it was mortgage financing, some of the asset markets. Are there any areas at the moment that you're seeing that might be still pinched? Not that we see. I mean, I think markets look open and functioning more or less normally, especially compared to late March. Obviously got to pin a ton of that on the Fed and its vast array of emergency lending facilities that are still outstanding today. I think most importantly, we're not seeing those gapped out OIS LIBOR spreads. We're seeing short-term funding markets like CP are economically open again. Probably most importantly, treasury markets are operating smoothly. I will also say that you know we're obviously not out of this crisis, but the Fed is very clearly focused on that period of time and sort of solving for what went wrong before they stepped in. So what they're really starting to do is run postmortems already to really try and tease out just, just what the hell happened. And it seems like the focus is really on the role that non-bank financials played in causing or at least exacerbating that market stress and dysfunctionality. And then a secondary focus is going to be the role of bank regulations which also seemed like an exacerbating force here, such as the leverage requirements on banks that almost certainly constrained dealer positions and balance sheets, especially as you saw a rush for liquidity and deposits flooding into the bank systems that just by the nature of the mathematical restriction just puts pressure on banks' abilities to flex balance sheets. So I think things are functioning now kind of as they should be. And the Fed is very clearly focused on kind of trying to really tease out what went wrong. And the banks are not really the focus there. It is the non-bank financials. Well, one thing that we still have in place is that the banks are still constrained by some of the COVID-related restrictions on equity distributions. You've talked about capital allocation and you know, speaking a bit to the confidence out there is that you know there might be dry powder for M&A. Uh, and we've seen last week, Morgan Stanley made a bid for Eaton Vance, which could be an example of that. What, what are your thoughts on capital allocation right now? Well, there's definitely dry powder. I mean, banks have been building capital in no small part because of what you mentioned about the limitation on equity distributions. And M&A is certainly out there as a possibility for for deploying that excess capital. But I I don't think it's just sort of a blanket M&A wave. I think it's really a lot more strategic around the business lines and it's less, you know, maybe value-based or taking advantage of uh, steep discounts on tangible book. And that's especially true for the larger banks, which are, you know, most of them are constrained by deposit caps and doing bank-to-bank M&A to begin with. And I really think from an M&A perspective, the focus is really on fee income lines here and also technology and boosting service offerings through digitization. You mentioned Eaton Vance Asset Management is obviously a hot consolidation market. Banks other than Morgan Stanley have indicated interest in increasing scale there if if the acquisition does make sense. But I think those are fewer and further between. And in terms of capital allocation, I really think reinvestment around technology in the bank, uh, especially because we have had a turbocharged adoption of digital financial services as a result of this period of time. 
And then candidly, shareholder returns. I mean, banks have been building capital the past few quarters, and I think most, if not all of them, should jump on restarting buybacks just as soon as regulators allow. So there's probably some more deals to be done, but I don't think that we're necessarily looking at a consolidation wave in the larger banks and that the uh, the focus of acquisition activity would be a little bit more ancillary rather than whole bank focused. Oh, that makes sense. I guess uh, to tease into that deal uh, a little bit more, even if it doesn't necessarily indicate uh, a broader shift in the sector, but what lessons can we get from that transaction? You know, is this part of a longer term shift towards fees, whether it's to smooth out cyclical deal-based activities, perhaps to make up for stress on net interest margins? You know, anything to read from that? Yeah, I, th- I think that you know the the moves aren't necessarily a reaction to the margin stress we're feeling right now. I think that that's mainly going to be the providence of banks that are at severe funding cost advantages. We had you know CIT sold itself for less than half of tangible book. They are a prime example of that. But I, I really think that this focus on fee income is not actually a new development. The importance has been ratcheted up now that we're back into ZERP and back into ultra low interest rate environments. But you know we've been in that sort of period of time almost this entire recovery uh, so in a world where you know the u.s 10 years is still stuck below one percent there's little to no loan demand bank capital and reserve requirements in no small part grow from on balance sheet risks so growing those fee income lines of business makes all the sense in the world to us and it's made sense for you know a long period of time well before COVID came to wreck our world. And there is also, like you mentioned, a smoothing out factor in growing those fee income lines. Although I think that probably applies a little bit more to the capital markets players where you do get these very large quarter to quarter swings in revenues just based on the market backdrop. That volatility reduction, I do think is a major factor behind what we've seen in Morgan Stanley's reinvention. First, there was the build out of wealth management with Smith Barney, then it was furthered with the E-Trade and back-to-back Eaton Vance acquisitions. So, you know, Morgan Stanley is prototypical and a poster child for this sort of trend where their revenue generation has just become significantly more predictable compared to the Morgan Stanley of 10 years ago. And then, as I mentioned on the bank capital and reserve requirements, that's also a benefit under stress testing because you'll have less of a relative impact on your market losses, less of an impact on your risk-weighted assets and your balance sheet, and greater stability to your PP&R rates through the stress testing forecast period. So I, I don't think this is necessarily anything new, Rather, it's a continuation of a trend that we've seen taking hold for several years now. Oh, thank you. You mentioned stress testing, and it sort of brings up another topic from the regulators. And it's a topic that we touched on last time in our podcast together. The banks were facing the implementation of CECL, which you know, requires banks to set aside reserves for lifetime losses. Uh, and that was expected to occur at the very moment when loss of expectations were probably the, the most difficult to estimate. You know, we've since normalized to some degree, or at least have better understanding of where the stresses are in the marketplace. Now, how have the banks done with reserves? And and with CECL implementation. Yeah, so I mean, CECL implementation was always going to be messy, but like you noted, it it came into being probably at the absolute worst time, and it's tough to imagine a worse scenario for a lifetime loss accounting method. You know, we, we get asked all the time whether bank reserves are enough, and the reality is it's unknowable. We'll only know the answer ex post facto, which right now looks like it's probably shaping up to be by the end of 2021, maybe we'll get a much better sense. What we can say is that no bank looks particularly offsides on reserve adequacy relative to peers, at least, and what we know about the underlying risk exposures. That was not 
true earlier and last we spoke. I think coming out of the first quarter, there were a few banks that looked offsides. They made up for it with meaningfully larger builds in the second quarter. What I think is kind of interesting now that third quarter earnings have come and gone is that the macro inputs quarter over quarter probably would have actually supported reserve releases in the third quarter. That is that the baseline expectations and those macro inputs at the end of September were better than at the end of June. But what we actually saw is that banks generally maintained those nominal reserve levels. And in most cases, coverage actually ticked up because loan books are trending sideways at best. And so our best guess of what happened is that those baseline macro inputs improved over the last three months, but banks overweighted their downside scenarios sort of as a proxy for this inherent uncertainty there. And so I think that actually speaks a little bit to the conservativeness in reserve setting that my guess is that the math would have dictated they could have released reserves. And instead of doing so, they just put more weighting on those downside scenarios. So I do think that's a positive. And then, you know, even taking a step back, I thought this was really interesting. JP Morgan actually sized their downside scenario. They didn't say how much they were weighting in the model, but they said if it were to play out that way, they would have to pony up an extra 20 billion in reserves. Now, that's obviously less than ideal, but that's actually only around two thirds of their trailing. 12-month pre-tax earnings. That's eminently manageable. JP Morgan is one of the most profitable banks. So maybe the true adverse scenario would have a bigger impact on others. But even then, take it to a full you know, one year of trailing earnings. I think wiping out a single year of profits to absorb all the credit losses from the worst economic situation in a generation, I think that's still a pretty good outcome, all things considered. I think you're right about that. You know, certainly, we, all of us, I think we're expecting quite a bit worse when this uh, pandemic came upon us. You mentioned a couple answers ago about the net interest margins and banks' ability to kind of manage through in most environments. Um, you know, we've seen a modest deepening of the curve to some degree as investors are pricing in a potentially a fiscally looser agenda. And, you know, we've actually seen, you know, maybe it's a, the curve has actually widened out a little bit wider than it was in April and at year end, albeit with a, a downward shift. So there really hasn't been a lot of spread in the curve. How are the banks going to navigate this, particularly as we sort of think about lower for probably longer? Yeah, I mean, it, they're going to be pressured. There's no question about it, but I don't think they actually really manage to a margin. I think they just make various decisions on the inputs and margin just kind of falls where it may be. So what we're seeing is at least on the cost side, they're continuing to take in deposits and they're continuing to slash rates. We're seeing the online banks, which tend to be the rate setters for that higher yielding demand deposit. Although I think my high yield savings account is now at 60 bips, so it's a little bit of a misnomer. But those have been continued to get slashed, and there's probably some room to run on those. So that'll provide some support to margins going forward. I think on the other side of the balance sheet, there's really not a whole lot the banks can do. They're sitting on huge excesses of liquidity because of those deposit inflows, and really you need lending volumes to see margin expansion. And it's hard to really see bank either risk appetite or the market loan demand coming back until there's a little bit more clarity on the go forward macro environment. They're also swimming upstream against prepayment rates. So what we're really seeing is that the banks are deploying more 
of that excess liquidity into securities portfolios now. You know, I think in the second and first quarter, they were sitting more on cash and reserves, partially just, again, that uncertainty and sort of not sure how much of these deposit flows are, are going to stick with them and how much of them will be flighty. I think they have a little bit more confidence in the stickiness of those deposit inflows, and they're a little more confident putting them into securities portfolios. But even then, you mentioned the steepness of the curve. I don't. We haven't really seen the banks buying long-dated treasuries. I mean, we'll see when the third quarter regulatory reports come out, but our analysis, at least at the mid-year point, indicated that most of the banks shied away pretty severely from deploying into the long end of the curve and that they're building their securities positions in shorter dated treasuries. You know, the recent steepening you mentioned, I'm a little circumspect. It's going to be enough to get them to actually extend out the curve. I think they're probably going to be wary of rising rate risk and would still see some asymmetry in trying to, you know, eke out a few more basis points of carry by extending out the long end of the curve where that carry gain can easily get wiped out with even a small rate move. I mean, two tens might be 70 basis points, but every 10 basis point move higher on that 10-year is about a point of price movement lower. So I, I think you're going to have to get a significantly steeper or just simply nominally higher curve to for banks to actually try to pick up some gains at that point. And so I think it, you know it's going to continue to be the case that if and where they want to take duration, it's probably going to be MBS and they're going to stay short on treasuries. Thanks, Jesse. I, I think overall you've laid out a fairly solid or stable position for the banks, which of course is notable given the, the existential questions that were coming into and out of the, the global financial crisis. You know, banks have been a defensive position, high quality fixed income this year. So when you think about where investors should be positioned, you know, how do you feel about stretching on the curve within you know, the bank's capital structures or going down in quality or over to the weaker names? So we're good with going down in quality, actually, and that's both across sort of the ratings tiers and within the capital structures. We've advocated for the past six months sort of a barbell approach and, you know, taking risk where you can, which is not that many places in banking, and then rotating into sort of higher quality, larger issuers in that very tightly clustered A tier and that trade has mostly been borne out. We've seen a, a very significant rally in those triple B tier lenders, which tend to be on the consumer side of things. You know, we're not fundamentally opposed to moving out the curve either to generate yields, although I think value is a bit less obvious with how tight spreads are and, and how flat the curve is. You know, one thing I, I will say is that if you look at the shape of the bank credit curve relative to broader corporates, two tens are actually pretty much the same for IG industrials versus banks. And, and historically, bank credit curves tend to be flatter. So I think that would support some moderate curve extension there. And, and again, on a fundamental basis, we really have no concerns with moving down the capital structure or moving down the ratings tier. The one thing I'll say on the capital structure point, though, is that the preferreds market is a little trickier just because you have such massive rate risk that's endemic to the market. You know, again, fundamentally, no concerns going down the structure. We still see de minimis deferral risk, which is always kind of point A and point B in terms of preferred holder concern. But the price rally that we've seen over the past six months has basically sent us back to the pre-pandemic concerns we had about valuation, interest rate risk, and the fact the market was not really pricing in any sort of extensions there. I mean, today we just had BNY Mellon 
price uh, over 500 million of a 3.7 fixed to float preferred. And you know that's close to, if not an all-time low for any bank. And so we're once again, basically just getting concerned about the downward pricing pressure. If we get honestly, even just a modest little pop in interest rates over the next few years. So I think when it comes to preferreds, the market is looking pretty rich to us again. I think if you look at spreads over the senior layer of the capital structure, they're not all that stretched and they can look compelling, but it's really, it's that rate risk that we're having trouble getting over. And so, you know, it feels to us like the market is basically behaving and pricing these securities, like we're going to be stuck in a sub 1% 10 year, you know, forever, but these are perpetual securities. And I think at some point, you know, you're going to get some higher interest rates. And so, you know, that can have very sharp price impacts that, you know, we saw that in March when, you know, a lot of the earlier 2020 vintages traded down to, you know, high 70s, low 80s. And the other point I would make on preferreds is we're also wary of the political risk here. You know, the Biden tax plan does make mention of taxing QDI along with capital gains as ordinary income. That would only apply over a certain earnings threshold. And to be totally honest with you, I don't know how much of the market is held by investors that would qualify for that different tax regime. But, you know, we would still, if that were to come to pass, we would still expect that yields would have to back up if the preferred dividends lose their tax advantage status. So sort of on a risk symmetry basis, I think it's increasingly getting stacked to being just wary about the valuations that we're seeing in the preferred market. Thanks, Jesse. So it seems like you're generally constructive on risk, but uh, a bit nervous on just you know, how it's being priced. And, and, and part of that's going to be the environment we're in. And it, it's hard to find that across the, the broader financial markets. I guess let's dig into a couple of the names. You know, some of your notes recently, you've talked about challenges at City. You're constructive there. Wells can't seem to find a headline, but you're still pretty cautious. What are some of your views on the credits? So we haven't really shifted our recommendations all that much coming out of earnings. We rejiggered a few of them in that triple B consumer space I was talking about, but that was really just about valuations coming off the rally and just kind of preferred positioning among those yield generating issuers. Like you said, we still generally like taking risk and spread down the rating spectrum here. But, you know, spreads are once again very tightly clustered. I think among the big six banks, we're still about a 10 or 15 basis point differential between the widest and the tightest. So we tend to prefer generally rotating into scale and diversification within that sort of A tier. And so that continues to mean a preference for the money center banks and the largest regionals where we think the diversification, both in terms of balance sheet and revenue generation, is sort of a winning combination in the COVID crisis. You mentioned two of the few kind of story names that we actually have out there. Yeah, we're, we're still constructive on City and we are still wary on Wells. You know, City, recent consent order, $400 million fine. It's just of a, of a different beast than Wells, I think. Wells is still laboring under this asset cap as we close in on the three-year mark. And that asset cap is effectively unprecedented. It is the high water mark for regulatory crackdown. And, and City, City avoided all of that. Their issues really appear mainly to do with underlying data quality and the technological infrastructure. I think there's some idea that the sort of M&A way with which City was built, plus its geographic expansive footprint has sort of given rise to some of those issues. Whereas Wells, especially now with the past two and a half, three years of hindsight, it really is is pretty obvious, I think, that there were systemic risk management issues across the entire enterprise. Yes, it's going to take a few years for City to rectify these technological deficiencies, but I, I really think it's no small thing, the fact that they escaped the full weight 
of the regulatory thumb and there's really no business activity restrictions as a result of the consent order whereas Wells has had to kind of tap dance below this asset cap for a number of years. And I would just say on Wells that it's not just the regulatory issues that we're concerned about. I think we really do have questions about the core underlying business and competitive positioning here. You know, Wells does not have a major capital markets presence, and so it's more reliant on spread income compared to peers. And it goes back to the comment we were talking about, about the importance of fee income generation in a you know low interest rate world. Wells is also much more heavily indexed to commercial real estate, to construction lending, to C&I relative to the money center peers. That's due in no small part to the fact that they don't have a scaled credit card business. And we actually think that the lack of that credit card business is a pretty glaring product deficiency and a pretty major differentiator because retail banking has really evolved over the past 10 years. So our kind of thesis here is that the money center banks have been using the credit card product as an account acquisition tool to get the customer into the bank's ecosystem. And then you can generate demand from that customer across products and services. It's somewhat ironically kind of analogous to that old Wells Fargo cross-sell model, which ultimately seemed to partially get them into trouble. So it's a much more customer-centric way of looking at a return profile within a bank. And so on the retail side, you use that credit card as an account acquisition tool. You're seeing the rollout of these bank loyalty programs where the more products and services you have with the bank, the more the rewards propositions reinforce each other. And so I think in that competitive light, Wells's lack of legitimate card book is, is a real competitive disadvantage. I mean, you know, there is an angle that the new CEO, Sharf, ran Visa for several years. So, you know, theoretically, he knows the importance and the growth potential in payments and just card transactions in general. But the problem is, is removing that asset cap is, you know, 1A and 1B in terms of management priority. And so we still haven't heard Sharf lay out this clear strategic vision for Wells beyond, you know, massive cost cutting to get their bloat expense base down. Now, eventually they'll get the asset cap lifted. And we do think that credit cards could and should be a focus whenever the company can turn to offense, but they've basically been lagging and been disadvantaged for several years on that front. And then the other thing that we're wary of with Wells is reputational risk actually translating into real business outflows. You know, in many ways, Wells was very lucky that the asset cap hit when it did. I have to think that the best time, if there is a best time to have a constraint on growth is when you're late cycle amid slowing loan demand and tight spreads. Um, happy to kind of walk away from that business. But now that we're in the pandemic and we're in a nascent recovery and Wells is still under this regulatory stricture, we're concerned that Wells is going to start to bleed share on that economic upswing with increasing customer attrition to the degree that Wells you know, can't satisfy demand or really has to be uh, much more programmatic due to that asset cap. I mean, there were several articles that came out months ago that indicated, you know, kind of widespread borrower dissatisfaction when Wells was standing up the PPP program, for example. You know, to, to be fair to the company, there are levers it can pull. We do expect dispositions are going to pick up to help carve out some balance sheet headroom there, but I think the risk remains. And then obviously the kind of missing component of all of this is, is just valuation. I mean, Wells has finally faded back so that they're trading firmly wide of Bank of America and JP Morgan. That was not always the case during this asset cap sort of saga. But still, again, you know, I mentioned how tightly spreads are clustered and it just still seems like Wells is too rich for its risks relative to kind of the very well-positioned bellwethers like a JP Morgan or a Bank of America. Well, thank you, Jesse. That wraps it up for me. 
as always, I very much appreciate your insights on the bank sector. So thank you again for joining us today. My pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. And thank you, listeners. As always, you can find our research on our website, creditsites.com. Or if you are not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit size disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Received by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.